0: So the the message that I'm bringing today is simply titled, Conflict. We're going to talk today, it's just going to get real. This is where the rubber hits the road, (laughs) right? Because it's all well and good when the gospel is a concept, when it's just good news. Who doesn't like good news, right? When it's just sort of like a, a theory that I ascribe to, this beautiful notion of redemption and we're saved, but you know, in some ways where the rubber really hits the road for the gospel is when we see it outworked in our conflict. I think it'd be fair to say as I look back on my childhood and Andy, many of you know Andy, my wife, I think we had pretty well opposite upbringings when it came to the area of conflict. So first of all, you know, on on my side of the family, my parents both came from homes. Where where neither of them had good role models at all for healthy conflict. In fact, there was a lot of shouting, sometimes really what's ultimately verbal abuse, a lot of anger and unhealthy conflict. It was quite a traumatic upbringing for both of my parents. And in fact, not only have they had that, but really they didn't themselves have a real relationship with Jesus until decades into their own marriage. So they had really a gap there. And as a result of what they experienced, as kids, my mom once told me before she passed away, she once told me that when she and dad were first married, because of their upbringing, they made a vow together, there will never be fighting in our house. Well, how many know that's not the gospel either? (laughs) (laughs) And so as a result of that vow, uh, we were black belts in conflict avoidance as a family. I mean, (laughs) we were like legitimately incredible at it. And so if there was any way you could delay, deny, or completely avoid a conflict, we would do that. We, I mean, there was so much stuff under the rug in our house. You know what I mean? Like we swept everything under the carpet apart from the inevitable. When you live that way, once in a while it's like a volcano, something ugly spews up, and everybody's like, whoa, what happened there? Yeah, the fruit of years of denials, what happened there? Uh, but, you know, we just didn't know what to do about it. That was the only pattern that we knew as a home. Now, to add a little word of balance, I'll say this my mom and dad came to Christ and it changed everything. And even in their later years and decades of doing life and marriage and conflict one way, they turned it around. But you know, my childhood, it was all conflict avoidance. In fact, I remember, here's a a good example, many, many, many examples. But I remember as a teenager, not long before I actually gave my life to Jesus, I had a girlfriend and her name, believe it or not, it's True. Her name was Pepita, which Andy, my wife, still to this day, thinks is hilarious. But anyway, true story. I had a girlfriend called Pepita, and uh, one night she came over to our house for dinner. You know, I'm, I don't follow Jesus. We're teenagers. We're in my bedroom. The door is closed. One thing leads to another. We're kissing, and she is literally half naked, and my mom just walks in without knocking. Now, I don't know to this day, I have to find out in eternity if she did that on purpose or if that was accidental. She did apologize for interrupting, <laughs> true story, sorry for interrupting, dinner's ready. And then she walks out, <laughs> true story, walks out, closes the door, Pepita and I look at each other, you know, get ourselves dressed and straighten out, walk out, eat dinner, no one says a word. It was never spoken of. In fact, this story has never been told until this moment, right here, right now. Talk about conflict avoidance. It's not like that was okay. I guarantee 100% what was going on in that room was not okay with my mom. But we avoided conflict at all costs. On the other hand, Andy's upbringing was a little different. She grew up in a family with what you could describe as fairly free-flowing conflict style. It kind of kept on rolling. They fought, not always grounded in the gospel, mind you, and they'd be the first to say that, looking back on it. And some of that conflict, frankly, came from anger. And because of that, unhelpful anger, some of that conflict led to pain that took years to heal. But I will say that when Andy, with her upbringing, and me, with my upbringing, came together, she at least was comfortable with conflict. (laughs) Seemed like when we got into a disagreement, she was clear-headed. She knew what she thought, why she thought it. She had like almost photographic memory of everything that happened in chronological order and I felt defenseless. Uh, Even though some of her upbringing was unhelpful when it came to conflict, she at least seemed to be able to think clearly and if she had any inkling of an issue, even unspoken, uh, she went after it. Now me on the other hand, well trained in conflict avoidance, it felt like when we started to fight like a fog descended. I couldn't think clearly i could not articulate my, i felt like literally felt disoriented in the fog of war i wanted to retreat and it seemed like the right thing i should retreat let the emotions subside that's what i was telling myself right this isn't logical hours later truthfully days later i'm still thinking of clever things i should have said right because <laughs> because anyone anyone else relate to this in the moment i can't think at all i don't know what's going on we're fighting something's wrong and i uh, i remember one particular fight very early in our marriage And, uh, Andy was, her voice was raised, and I went to walk away, which was what I thought you should do when things get heated, and I turned and said to her, I will never fight with you. (laughs) So, so, so that's like a red flag to a bull. That's basically daring her to fight with me. I didn't know, I'm sure I thought it was noble to, I'll never fight with you. Like, that's a healthy goal to have in marriage. I'll say this, what we're going to teach you about today, it is fair to say that our marriage would be a complete disaster today. If we were even still married at all, if she and I hadn't learned to keep the gospel at the very center of our conflict, even in our conflict, we can see the gospel lifted up. You know, we, uh, this series has been in conjunction with a, a study that we've been doing, Gospel-Centered Life. Many of our community groups have been studying it. There's one quote from this final study this week, and it's this. He says, Nothing is more common to relationships than conflict. Amen. If the gospel is not affecting the way we deal with conflict, it's probably not touching us very deeply. Isn't that the truth? If we say we ascribe to following Jesus and embrace the gospel as our hope of salvation, but it's not touching our conflict, something is wrong. And in fact, for those who are uh, in these community groups, one of the things that we'll be looking at this week is kind of two responses that the way of the world tends to respond to conflict. On the one hand, it's kind of attacking. And on the other hand, it's withdrawing. It's largely a binary choice that the world operates by. Attackers on the offense, wanting to win, ready to fight, and basically convinced that they're right. On the other hand, withdrawers. On the defense, suppressing their thoughts, suppressing their emotions, trying to keep the peace, sort of in quotations, unfortunately, or delay or avoid the conflict altogether. Attackers and withdrawers, hunters or hunted, bullies and victims. When, in fact, if you embrace the gospel, we're not any of those things. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And what we see in the life of Jesus mind you, and he was certainly at the center of all kinds of conflict, both natural and supernatural conflict. We don't see, in the way that I've defined them here, either the attacker or the withdrawer in Jesus. We see something else, a higher way. Like most things in life, the gospel offers us a different way to the way of this world. Now, one of the, the scripture says that his ways are higher than our ways, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In fact, Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform. To the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So don't be conformed to the ways of this world that we're very familiar with. No, I don't want to be conformed. I don't want to be transformed. I don't want, I want to allow God, his word, the gospel, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to change me from the inside out. Seek the Father's heart to teach you and I gospel-centered conflict resolution. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't spare us the details of all kinds of conflict and show us both good and bad. And there's a good example, actually, believe it or not, between two of the apostles. It's between Peter and Paul. I mean, these guys are foundational to the establishment and expansion of the early church, and they get into a public disagreement. And the Bible shows us what it looks like when the gospel's at the center. It's in Galatians 2, verse 11 to 16. So Paul is writing here, and he says, When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers, so the non-Jews who were not circumcised. Afterwards, when friends of James came, Peter would not eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And listen to this. This is the key. Verse 14. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message... I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you are a Jew by birth, since you, sorry, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. And yet we know, here's the gospel message, yet we know a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law we have believed in christ jesus so that we may be made right with god because of our faith in christ not because we've obeyed the law. no one for no one will ever be made right with god by obeying the law this is a gospel centered conflict and the essence of it is this is that peter a jew who has become a follower of christ has gone out from the jewish world into a gentile environment Those who've received Christ afresh, they've come from a different background. They haven't been Jewish people. They haven't been followers of the Word of God. And Peter now gets into hypocrisy. One minute, he's very comfortable mixing with the so-called outsiders of the day, the non-Jewish people. But when some legalistic people turn up, all about the rules and the old way and everybody should be circumcised, which is not the gospel, Peter gets into conflict avoidance. So rather than say, hey, 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 the gospel, the gospel is Peter appeases the legalistic people and backs away from the Gentiles. It's a break of trust. It's a break of relationship. And unfortunately, others start to follow Peter's example, even Barnabas, who's like one of the hero encouragers of the New Testament. And Paul calls them out. But what I love that he does when he calls them out is that the essence of it is, when I saw, what did he say in verse 14? When I saw they were not following the truth, of the gospel message. What's this really about for Paul? Is he trying to win an argument? Is he trying to be cooler or more popular than Peter? Is it about I'm right, you're wrong? This is not attacking, this is not withdrawing, this is a gospel-centered conflict. He calls them out. Unfortunately, he has to call him out publicly. Why? Because the sin was public. In fact, it had drawn other people in. Now, that's not always the way. And a word of wisdom, church. We should always try and address our conflict with others in the smallest circle that's necessary. In this case, it had to be public because it had happened publicly, drawn other people into Peter's hypocrisy. But the center of the issue was the gospel, not winning or losing, not bullies and victims. It was the gospel. So here's a question. Where is the gospel in our relationships? Where's the gospel in our relationships? It's all about reconciliation. It's all about restoration. The gospel restores us to our right standing, right relationship with our heavenly Father. And it restores, reconciles relationships to each other in the body of Christ. And it invites others in. But it's the gospel being seen in our relationships. Ephesians 4, verse 31 to 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander, be put away from you, along with all malice. That's challenging. And listen, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ, God in Christ, forgave you. Can the gospel be seen in our relationships? Or to put it another way, as another passage says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you what? Love one another. The gospel's got to be seen, amen, and not just heard. I think we live in a day, I mean, I love social media. I'm engaged with social media. There is a trap, and I don't think social media in and of itself is inherently good or bad. I just think it amplifies our voice. It amplifies whatever's going on in us. And so one thing that's amplifying in our day is unhealthy conflict, amen? A lot of passive-aggressive stuff happening these days on social media where we take you know make sw- sweeping statements and cast generalizations and take pot shots at people publicly like very bold like from our <laughs> personal devices, and not so bold in like, real human, help me understand, let's work this through, I know this is difficult, like we can be real passive in our relationships here, not active, not willing to engage, or to talk, or to press into the difficult stuff, or hear things that are uncomfortable, but happy to make sweeping statements online, we've got to be careful, is the gospel being seen in our relationships, where is the gospel, secondly, in our conflicts, I mean, of course, if it's not seen in our relationships, it's certainly not going to be seen in our conflicts. Don't we tend to see our conflicts in very one-dimensional ways? Or is that just me that sees most conflicts from my perspective, where coincidentally, 100% of the time, I'm right? Does anybody else feel this way? It's very cut and dried. I'm right. I'm always right. Does anybody else? I mean, maybe this is a terrible thing to admit. That is how we tend to see our conflicts a lot of times, if we're honest. We see them in a very one-dimensional, me-centric kind of a way. In the last couple of weeks, Andy and I and the kids uh, had a staycation. And uh, we did a couple little overnight trips around the area, including an overnighter down to Philly. And uh, so we spent an afternoon with the kids in the American Museum of the, uh, of the Revolutionary War. It was amazing, fantastic. But there was a lot of things that were fascinating and and, and educational for me. But the thing that probably impressed me the most was that they had made an attempt to convey that conflict from multiple points of view. Which isn't always the way that we hear any conflict. True of my Australian history as well. Oftentimes we have a one-dimensional view. So it was interesting to walk through that and experience a British viewpoint The American colonists and their viewpoint, to hear from six of the Native American tribes as they wrestle with who to side with and who would protect their lands, to realize that like every conflict, it's multidimensional. Now, there's a dimension that even the world often misses. In every relationship, there's not only my point of view and maybe the other parties and the onlookers as well, but there's also a gospel point of view for every conflict. Do we even consider that? It's not even just about walking a mile in the other person's shoes or having the humility to realize that mine is not the only point of view, but it's also to elevate the conversation as a follower of Jesus to say, well, there's my point of view and yours and theirs, but what does the gospel say? The question's like this. What's the Father's heart here? If you find yourself in the middle of a conflict, to pause and think, Father, what's, what's your heart? What's your desire? What's your will? Or what does the good news of salvation and grace and forgiveness have to say about this situation I'm in right now? It's all well and good to see how the gospel affects a few hours of my Sunday, but how's it affecting the bun fight at the office Monday afternoon? That's got a to matter too, right? Can we bring the gospel into that? James 1, 19 to 21 says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to get angry. <laughs> Anyone else convicted? I feel like I do better at slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to get angry. Anybody else feel like you do that exact opposite of this scripture? Human anger does not produce right, uh, righteous God desires. Sorry, the righteousness that God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives. Humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. It's what it looks like when the gospel's at the center. We're quick to listen, slower to speak, slow to get angry because there's something higher at work. You know, more often than we care to admit, it's actually, our conflicts are actually a result of our idols. Now, we don't always think about this, or even like to admit, especially today, 21st century Western Christianity, we don't even like to admit that we have idols. We kind of think of that as confined to the Old Testament. Big, you know, statues, things made out of bronze and gold and stone. But the truth is, we can have so easily idols in our heart. For instance, in Western society, we're all about freedom, independence, my rights. And I'm not saying that they're inherently evil either, but it's possible to so adore and so value our freedom, independence, and rights that they become an idol in our lives. And you know what? That's going to cause conflict. If my freedom is my idol, then anything that happens that crosses my boundary or how I see it. If, if my personal freedom is threatened in any way, anger, defensiveness of my idol is what's going to spew out. Or if money becomes an idol in my life, not bad to have money, but it's not good for money to have you. So if money becomes an idol in my life, and in any way my money is impacted by the choices of others, I'm going to rise up and defend my idol. If my reputation is an idol in my life, and something happens that I perceive is diminishing my prestige, that I might try and make others feel small to make myself feel big again, it's conflict, but it's not gospel-centered conflict. Because regardless of the content, what was said What wasn't said, he said, she said, what they did, what they didn't do, regardless of the content. A lot of times what's really going on here, the real conflict, is about the idols in our hearts. James 4, 1 and 2 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So oftentimes, rather than doing that last piece, which is prayerful, humble submission of our conflicts and our dreams and desires and needs, rather than bring them to God, we oftentimes allow that war within us to take this out on those around us. So we need both love and truth. We need both love and truth. You know, actually, if you're familiar with the values of our church, our vision is to know Christ and to make Him known. And our mission, what we hope for every person that, that calls Liberty Church home, is that you'd follow Jesus, thrive in community, and make a difference. But, but our values, the five values, the way that we do what we do, that's what we're believing for, is that, is that we would live out with love, truth, freedom, family, and others. And I believe that intersection of the first two is crucial. We need both love and truth. In fact, I believe if we don't embrace both love and truth, we never get to freedom. Real freedom comes in the place, because love and truth, they go together. Love builds a bridge for the truth. Truth without love is generally not received. On the other hand, you know, if we have love and no truth, it's not real love at all. We need both love and truth. In fact, the way Ephesians 4 puts it, it says, speaking the truth in love. Here I have both together. The truth in love, we will grow to become in every way, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Truth and love. If you find yourself in a conflict right now, then I want you to just take a moment to reflect on both truth and love in this situation. We so easily run to just one at the exclusion of the other, both love and truth. And if you've got something that needs to be expressed, let's do what the the writer of Ephesians encourages us to do, to speak the truth, yes, but to speak it in love. Amen? And speaking it in love means what we understand about reconciliation, what we understand about redemption, it's a dialogue. It's not a monologue. So we got to be ready not only to speak truth in love, but we got to be ready with an open heart to receive truth in return. It's not just about venting. <laughs> it's not just about, i got stuff to get off my chest. It's not just about unloading on someone. Very cathartic for you. <laughs> right? And they're like, at the end of it, the other party notices. If this is relationship, it is a two-way street. It's reciprocal. Amen? Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, Man must evolve for all human conflict. A method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation, and the foundation of such a method is love. I need both the truth and love. You know, what that reminds me is that so much of conflict is about the heart. You know, the scripture says, guard your heart with all diligence, out of it, flow all the issues of of our lives, amen? So healthy conflict, listen, requires a heart check. Are we willing... To do a heart check. We're often very quick, especially these days, to do the fact check. <laughs> That's not the whole thing in an argument, is not it? It's not just about the facts. It's actually largely about the heart, heart check. Ephesians four twenty six to 27 says, In your anger, do not sin. By the way, what that teaches you also is that anger in and of itself is not necessarily sin. Now, it can be an environment, a hotbed for sin, but anger in and of itself can be a righteous anger. But oftentimes we just run right from our anger to sin. He says, do not, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And listen, and do not give the devil a foothold. That's what we often do, isn't it? Anger leads us to sin, creates a way for the devil to come in and disrupt our hearts, our relationships, and the work of the gospel. So we've got to check our hearts, don't we? Because the gospel speaks the languages of love and forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, redemption, honor toward God and toward each other. And so I need to partner with the Holy Spirit when I'm in a conflict and discern what's going on here. Take the time, do a heart check. Is this really about my idols? What's really happening in me right now? And then having discerned it's time to confront. And that doesn't always mean the other person. Ever done a little time with the Holy Spirit and realized the person you need to confront is you? (laughs) That you could work out about 90% of that conflict without even involving the other person? That's honest, isn't it? And to confront even ourselves, not with judgment, not with shame, not with condemnation, I'm a horrible person. No, confront ourselves even with the gospel. I was brought in years ago, before we started Liberty Church, we moved about eight or so years ago to New York City, and before we did, I had a a full-time practice uh, doing leadership development for corporate clients, and I was traveling, speaking at business conferences, doing a lot of one-on-one executive coaching, and one of the companies that I'd partnered with for several years uh, was uh, in Food and Beverage, they were a, a global franchise organization, and they were having a lot of trouble in their finance team. And I'd coached several of the finance team, including the CFO and others, and they said, could you come in and do a workshop? Because what we're noticing is gossip, we're losing some good people. There was just, it was just a really, a a lot of kind of like side conversations, undercurrents and things that weren't really the organizational culture. And so I was trying to be helpful, and I came in to do a workshop with them one afternoon. Got the whole finance team in a room. And I did a a workshop. It seemed to me as I look at it through this lens that it was classic withdrawing behavior. So it seemed to me that the solution would be, let's talk a little bit about assertiveness in conflict. So I did a workshop called, Frank is Your Friend. (laughs) And we talked all about how to be frank, because that wasn't happening in this environment. How can we be frank? How can we speak truth in love was my intention. Mind you, I'm doing this in an environment where some likely were followers of Jesus, but that wasn't the organizational culture as a whole. Well, I felt like the workshop was going well. And then I opened up for questions and comments. And uh, you can sense where this is going. Um, If you could picture like something which was like a cross of like a corporate workshop and Jerry Springer. (laughs) What happened next was breathtakingly awful. And made me really question whether I would achieved anything helpful at all. Because uh, let me say, the workshop ended, more accurately, I ended the workshop after... (laughs) One woman in her, like, business suit stood up, tears and makeup running down her face, and yelled at someone else across the room after me encouraging them to be frank, I hate you, and I hate your dog. (laughs) Like, I have totally lost the room now. So suffice to say, a few weeks later, I was encouraged to do a follow-up workshop This is a true story that requires zero exaggeration. This is exactly as it happened. A few weeks later, I came back and we did a session called Get It Right. And the the session about Get It Right was about how Frank can be your friend and not a weapon of mass destruction, which it had clearly become. I felt like I did more harm than good that day. And we talked about that the key to getting it right was right time, right place, right heart right, for every conflict, sometimes right time, right place is important, but more than anything, right heart, maybe it's too fuzzy for a corporate environment, I said right motive, right intense, right, right heart, but it's so important that we check our hearts, and what it reminded me, if nothing else, is that, you know, in, in environments where I can't necessarily even be sure that others are bought into the gospel, well, we got to realize that the gospel truly is a very different foundation for our conflict, the gospel changes everything, As I kind of wrap this up, I want to put something on the screen for you that is like a framework uh, that I think helps us compare and contrast what's happening, the difference between attacking or withdrawing the ways of this world and the gospel. For instance, the heart foundation of attacking is is largely self-righteousness. The heart foundation of withdrawing is oftentimes insecurity. The heart foundation of the gospel, repentance, forgiveness, forgiveness. You know, the power source of attacking is our flesh and our pride. The power source of withdrawing is also the flesh, but it's the flesh and fear. But what's the power source of conflict that's centered on the gospel? It's the Holy Spirit. It's not our flesh at all. It's the Holy Spirit who leads and empowers us. What's our commitment when we're attacking? It's to be right. <laughs> what's our commitment when we're withdrawing? Is to avoid conflict. That's the win. But the commitment of the gospel is different. The, the gospel is committed to understand and to engage. So the direction of attacking becomes argue and subdue. The direction of withdrawing becomes denying and appeasing. But the direction of the gospel is to convey and invite. We, we speak truth and love and we invite a response. It's very different. So the feeling of attacking, I think this should be in quotations, is life is safe. It's the illusion that I'm safe if I stay on the offense. The feeling of withdrawing is life is less painful, as if by avoiding conflict, I can avoid pain. That's not the truth at all. The reality is is that life is challenging, and the gospel embraces that. Hey, life is challenging, and it's worth it to walk out our conflicts in a Christ-centered way. What's the goal? The goal of attacking is self-protection. The goal of withdrawing is peace, but it's a faux peace, isn't it? It's not real peace. This is the kind of peace that's really just the absence of conflict. That's not real peace at all. The goal of the gospel is God's glory and their good. And lastly, what's the result? The result of attacking, hurt, and divisiveness. What's the, the result of withdrawing, bitterness, separation? What's the result of the gospel? Well, this is beautiful. The result of the gospel, healing and reconciliation. You could use a grid like this. Just leave it up on the screen for a moment. You could use a grid like this to do a heart check. Find yourself in a conflict, okay, let's, let's run it through. We don't even have to get halfway down the page. What's my heart foundation right now? Is this self-righteousness or insecurity that I'm operating from, or is this grounded in repentance and forgiveness? You know, what's my power source right now? Is it the flesh and pride? Is it the flesh and fear? Or am I being empowered by the Holy Spirit in this conflict? What am I committed to? Is this all about being right? Is this all about just avoiding conflict at any cost? Or, or am I truly committed to engaging to understanding the people that God's placed around me? What's, what's my goal? Am I trying to win, to subdue? Am I trying to appease or some kind of a faux peace? Or, or am I committed with the Holy Spirit to embracing the gospel as His way, inviting a conversation, speaking truth and love? The gospel's God's way. Amen? It's God's way. And we know that to be a fact because in spite of our failures, God sent Jesus to justify us completely and eternally. So when we live out the gospel, that's who we're called to be in the earth, not focused on our own so-called laws and idols, and not, not, not just focused on the things of this world, but hoping for reconciliation, pursuing unity, Pursuing redemption, where we're not focused on winning the argument, but where we want to find Jesus in the solution, where we want the gospel to win, where that's our higher cause. As one of the worship team comes to join me, I just I want to say this. Aren't you grateful? I sure am that Jesus didn't follow the ways of attacking or withdrawing when it came to our conflict with our Heavenly Father. We sinned, we fell short, and we were in a conflict with God, and unlike most of our human conflict, it was crystal clear who was right and who was wrong, <laughs> and in spite of that, Jesus comes. In spite of that, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son for our redemption, our reconciliation, it was all about the gospel, It was all about the good news our redemption, our salvation. And the Scripture says, it's now been entrusted to us, the ministry of reconciliation. I want to pray for you this morning. Can I have heads bowed and eyes closed across this place? (laughs) Well, first of all, Heavenly Father, we just say thank you, thank you, that we can experience redemption and restoration, forgiveness, peace, and grace because you modeled for us what it is to reconcile, what it is to cross that great divide. And God, now forgiven, now that we have received this beautiful freedom, let us be agents of that change and grace and forgiveness in the earth. Let's pray for every person here today. I don't know who might find themselves in this room listening to this message today. And the truth is, they haven't made their peace with God. Invited what Jesus did on the cross to be payment for their own sins. So Heavenly Father, I pray right now as I extend this simple invitation. For faith in our hearts. You're the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that we need you, Jesus. We need your higher way. So while heads are bowed and while eyes are closed all across this place, if today you realize in your heart that you need Jesus, maybe you've never really been a Christian, a follower of Christ, or maybe once upon a time you were, and for whatever reason, somewhere along the way, you lost your way or lost your faith, and you find yourself here today ready to come home and receive the forgiveness of your Heavenly Father. Can I pray for you today? I'm not going to bring you to the front, but I want to pray for you right where you're sitting today. But I do want to ask you to do one simple thing, just to acknowledge your need of God, and that's this. While others are in prayer for you, If you say, Paul, when you pray, can you please include me? I want to get right with God today. I want to commit my life to following Jesus as my Savior, my Lord, and my King. I want to ask you to do one simple thing. People do this every week in our church. Would you just lift your hand up in the air? I'll see it, and you can put it down again, and we're going to pray. Yeah, I see you there. Who else, come on, would raise a hand today and say, I need Jesus. I see you there, sir. Who else? And here. I'm looking around the room. Are there others today? I've already seen three hands. Yeah, I see you there as well. Four. Anyone else today? But today is the day of your salvation. Can I pray for you and reconnect or connect you perhaps for the first time to your loving Heavenly Father? All right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray this morning. And I'm going to invite every voice to pray, but especially those of you who raised a hand today. I believe you raised it for a reason. And that your Heavenly Father wants to meet you right here, right now.